0: Well, good morning and welcome back. I have to say it is nice to hear the buzz of people connecting with one another here in the sanctuary. This is wonderful. If I can have your attention, we're going to come back together. And uh, if you're visiting us from home, welcome. If you're here in the church building, welcome. My name's Kingsley. I'm one of the ministry directors here at the church. Uh, We now turn our attention to the reading of God's word and the teaching of God's word. This is a tradition that goes back as far as the ancient church. And so to help us with the reading of God's word, I invite James to read for us. So, uh,
1: James. Our reading today is from 2 Corinthians 7, 2-16. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you, I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his Spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, and he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. If we can bow our heads, let's pray before we begin. God, we thank you for your word, and we are excited to be able to open this book and to see what you have to say to us, to hear what you have to say to us. And Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, so that we might be able to walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel, in a way that will honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. When Hannah and I got married and I got to see my beautiful wife walking down the aisle on our wedding day, I remember thinking to myself, I'm all in, glowing in radiance, beaming with beauty. If my heart was a house, every chamber was filled with love, every valve was open to let her in, every ounce of space was hers to occupy, I was hers. And that woman right there, that beautiful woman right there, she was mine. Fully committed, I said in my soul, I am all in. And it's a miracle. It's a miracle as I look back. Because before we could get there, years earlier, no longer than three months after we started dating, Hannah came to me and said, I'm all out. I'm out. I'm out. Why? Confronting my lack of commitment to her in my time, my energy, my attention, because of other things I had going on in my life, Hannah said, I didn't sign up for this. And if things don't change, I'm out. I'm all out. I want nothing to do with you. That was the first time I learned not to mess with this gloriously adorable five foot one woman. But it was also the day that I learned and was reminded that mutual love and commitment is non negotiable in any relationship. It's, it's non negotiable. And conceptually, many of us get this. Yet in practice, we're not always consistent. In fact, Canadian psychotherapist Cassandra Petrella once wrote, "Most people, most people, from uh, the perspective uh, come from the perspective and operate under the perspective of "I come first in a relationship." We often prioritize our needs before the needs of others, and when we see our friends and partners operating from the same individualistic perspective, we feel left forgotten. We feel neglected. we feel uncared for. Hannah felt this way in our relationship when we first started. And I'm wondering, have you ever felt this way? Maybe with friends, with family, maybe with colleagues. If you have felt this way, you're not alone. You're not alone because in our passage today, we see this isn't anything new. In fact, Paul, Paul the Apostle, writes to his friends in the ancient world a second letter, a plea asking them to make room for us in our hearts. This is a plea for mutual love and mutual commitment. Some of Paul's friends responded positively to his first letter, and now he's trying to win the hearts of his other friends, the remaining friends. And as we reflect today on Paul's second plea for gospel commitment, we're going to see what gospel commitment looks like. We're going to see the, the form of gospel commitment, and we're going to see the fruit of gospel commitment. And Lord willing... Lord willing, this will help us embrace this kind of commitment in our own lives as we engage one another in this church. These are our two points today. The form of gospel commitment and the fruit of gospel commitment. Let's look at verse 2 to 6. As we look at verses 2 to 6, we get a glimpse of what gospel commitment looks like. In short, it's like a multifaceted diamond. Gospel commitment is transparent, it's full of integrity. And it's also graciously patient. Let's see how Paul models this and reveals each facet of gospel commitment, starting with transparency. Paul's transparency is sprinkled all throughout this passage. We see this in his willingness to call out imbalances in his friendship and also his willingness to express his feelings to his friends. He says, make room in your hearts for us, verse 2. We're afflicted at every turn, fearful within, he writes in verse 5. We see gospel commitment is transparent. It won't hold back to express what it needs, and it won't hold back to express how it feels. This is the first facet of gospel commitment. It's transparency. Verse 2 highlights another aspect, another facet of gospel commitment, namely integrity. Paul writes, We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. The words wronged, corrupted, and took advantage of might seem generic to us, bland, even even almost synonymous. But scholars believe, actually, these are very specific choice terms, terms that are referencing accusations that were brought against Paul. Things, specific things, that kept his friends from making room in their hearts for one another in gospel commitment. Like boxes of clutter that they stored in their hearts Some of his Corinthian friends were bitter over Paul's response to sin in their community. He had called them out, and he had hurt them. They felt like they were wronged. Others were upset because Paul didn't look like their, quote-unquote, true apostle. Poster apostles were supposed to be strong, proud, elegant. Apparently, Paul was neither of those things. People felt like Paul wasn't true. He was corrupting them, teaching them false things because he wasn't a quote-unquote true apostle. Others, others insisted that Paul was a conniving con man who, who knocked on their door and cheated them for financial gain. They had taken advantage of, him, of them. Paul says, that wasn't me. In gospel commitment to you, my friends, Paul says, I'm innocent. I've wronged no one. Corrupted no one. Taken advantage of no one. Integrity and transparency are the first two facets of gospel commitment. And these are unbelievably important traits for any committed relationship. Because these two traits reflect and affect our ability to trust one another. I mean, let's think about it. Without integrity... How can gospel friends, how can friends in general trust that they won't betray one another? Without transparency, how can gospel friends know what's in each other's hearts? How do we know if we've done something to hurt one another? How do we know if someone's angry at us, if there's something we can do to change? We need integrity. We need transparency. And Paul understands this, and so he's adamant to show us in our text today these two facets of gospel commitment, transparency and integrity. But we said this is a multifaceted diamond, so if we keep turning it, we'll see another facet, the final facet. That's gospel patience, gracious patience. Verse 3 shows us that gospel commitment is graciously patient. He writes, I do not say these things to condemn you, for you are in our hearts to die and to live together. Refusing to guilt trip his friends for their imbalanced commitment and instead affirming his love for his friends, Paul refuses to retaliate. And John Calvin, a theologian, uh, couldn't help but notice Paul's self-awareness here in verse 3. Knowing that readers might take verse 2 as a subtle jab back at them, Calvin points out that Paul intentionally softens his tone. I do not say these things to condemn you, he writes. This patience is is striking. I mean, just pause for a moment and think about how we respond often to one another in our day and age when wronged. How do we normally respond to one another? Most of the time, we retaliate. We attack, we avoid, or we even ignore one another in apathy. For, for those of us who avoid conflict, we run from the person and say, all is well, yet our body language and even our gossip says otherwise. For those of us who attack, we stand our ground and criticize and, and cut down one another with our words with no regard for what harm might be done. For those of us who ignore, we simply just leave our friendships without even saying a word. We actually have a really good example of this. Just a week ago, CBC published an article covering how Canadians are unfriending each other on Facebook because of their views over the vaccine mandates and the freedom convoy. I get it, these are hot topics and I understand that we will all have differing views, but what I don't get and what I don't understand and what strikes me most about this article is how quickly people are unfriending each other based on simple comments Online, No extended discussions, according to this article. And people are literally cancelling lifelong friendships out of their lives. Christians, Christians listening, is this you? Is this the type of commitment that you're lending your friends? Paul shows us that gospel commitment doesn't do that. Rather, it leans in in love, and it speaks with grace and engages with patience. Whether it's inside the church or outside the church, conflict will happen. It's just part of living in an imperfect world and with imperfect people walking side by side. But gospel commitment shows us that we don't have to respond like the world. We can respond differently to conflict with transparency with integrity, with patience. We have an opportunity here to reflect a little bit on our own relationships. How would you characterize your own commitment to your friends? What's the form? What's the shape that it takes? Does it look like gospel commitment? Or does it look like something else? I want you to think about that, Christians, while I talk about, while I address the, those that are exploring the faith. For, for those of you who are exploring the faith, I wanna ask you a different question. How do you feel about seeing this kind of gospel commitment in the world? Wouldn't it be beautiful if we saw a little more transparency, a little more integrity, even a little more patience? How amazing would it be? I mean, how amazing would it be if people of vastly differing opinions were to work through difference, their differences with these traits? It'd be wonderful, right? This is the multifaceted form of gospel commitment. You got one side that is transparent, one side that is full of integrity, one side that is full of patience. This is our first point. In exploring the gospel commitment today, Paul shows us the shape and form of gospel commitment. Now, let's pick up the pace and look at the fruit of gospel commitment, the fruit of gospel commitment. What, does, what is the end goal of gospel commitment? Uh, verse 9 tells us, let's read it. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death what's the goal gospel fruit repentance that leads to life Paul uses the word salvation and in our text the word salvation is interesting because uh, scholars see here a dual meaning to the word salvation in one sense salvation refers to our present spiritual flourishing the other is our eternal salvation we'll talk about that one later But for now, when we look at this passage, we get a glimpse to see how this repentance led to deep flourishing in not only Paul's life, but his friend's life. Yielding a massive garden of gospel fruit full of sweet flavors to the soul, verse 11 gives us a glimpse of what gospel fruit looked like and also what it tasted like. Uh, Paul writes in verse 11, what eagerness, what indignation, what fear, longing, zeal, etc., Commentator Murray Harris helps profile each of these flavors when he describes eagerness as the the renewed enthusiasm that people had to do what was right in response to Paul. Indignation refers to the renewed desire to defend Paul against false accusations. Fear referred to a renewed reverence and perspective of God. Longing and zeal refer to a renewed passion for their brother, Paul. Punishment, punishment was confusing because when you read that, you're like, why punishment doesn't sound like fruit. It sounds like a negative thing. But here we see punishment referring to the renewed commitment to walk with one another in mutual gospel commitment. The Corinthians weren't afraid to go and to call out their brothers and sisters' in sin so that they might change and bear fruit in accordance with the gospel. And Paul says, that's a good thing. In Paul's commitment to his friends, the Apostle Paul is willing to do whatever he needed to to get this fruit, this deep, present spiritual flourishing. And if you look at his tool to do this, we see he used a very interesting tool. He uses grief. As fertilizer for gospel fruit, God's, uh, God, Paul's not afraid to use grief cultivate that fruit. Uh, This might sound strange to us because what kind of friend intentionally grieves another friend, right? Who does that? Apparently. A really committed gospel friend does that. When Paul talks about grief here, he's not talking about the generic grief that we feel when, say, a loved one passes away. That's, That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a very specific type of grief. It's the grief that comes whenever someone confronts you with your sin. When, when, Hannah, when Hannah called me out on my lack of commitment, it was because I sinned against her. She deserved better and more commitment out of me. She mustered the courage to say true things, hard things, even grieving things, so that I could be led to repentance. It hurt and it caused deep sorrow. But look where that grief brought us. Nobody likes the feeling of grief. But here Paul wants us to see the value of grief in the Christian life. It's valuable because grief can take us somewhere. It can take us high into the sky, into new life, salvation. Or it can take us down into the dumps of death and decay. Paul distinguishes between these two. He calls one of these griefs godly grief, verse 10, or grief according to God. The other grief is called worldly grief, grief according to the world. Godly grief takes us to God, whereas worldly grief takes us nowhere beyond ourselves. Godly grief lets God be the measure of all things, while worldly grief lets man or woman be the measure of all things. Godly grief lets God determine who is right and who is wrong, who needs to ask for forgiveness and who needs to repent. It doesn't attack, avoid, or ignore based on personal judgments, but it lets God have the final word. Godly grief recognizes that committed gospel relationships aren't just between you and me, but between you, me, and God. And godly grief knows that makes all the difference. Because the God who handles our grief is the God who triumphs over grief. As he redeems humanity's grief, God conquered the world's grief by sending his son, the man of sorrow, well acquainted with grief. Bearing the grief of sinful man, Jesus died so that we might stand with renewed commitment that looks less like the world and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ the Redeemer, the Redeemer of the world. When we are confronted by our sin and grieved by gospel commitment, or, uh, by a gospel-committed friend, we have a choice to make. Either we look within and handle our own sin, which leads to death, or we turn to God, who will wash it all away and lead us to new life. When we turn away from ourselves and turn to God, that turning... That is called repentance. And what Paul wants to see is this is the kind of repentance that leads to a garden of sweet gospel fruit. When we look at one another in gospel commitment, gospel fruit awaits us. And that fruit is our present spiritual flourishing. There is a second aspect to it, eternal salvation. And again, we will get to that in moments. But for now, for many of us, Oftentimes, I think for Christians, when we see the form of gospel fruit, or the form of gospel commitment, excuse me, and the fruit of gospel commitment, we get overwhelmed. We look at it and we say, Who can do this thing? Who can live this way? It's impossible. I can't do this. I know I felt this way. Maybe you felt this way. There's not enough time in the world. There's not enough energy in the world. There's not enough resources in the world to allow me to walk in this way. If you're a Christian, I want you to know something. That's a lie. That's not true. Because if you're a Christian... You actually have everything you need to be able to walk in this way. It's all yours to live because someone has already enabled you to live this way. Someone has prepared your gardens to bear such fruit, and that someone is Jesus Christ, your Lord and your Savior. Remember how we talked about salvation having two meanings? The second meaning our eternal salvation— Well, when we turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and for our eternal salvation, something changed within us. We're not the same. Our tiny, small hearts of stone were broken down and we were given hearts of gold, massive hearts, hearts with bigger doors and bigger windows, hearts with higher ceilings and wider rooms. A heart whose foundation is God, and a heart whose furnishings are fit for God, a heart big enough for God to move in and for us to welcome in new friends, new family, brothers and sisters, a place where people can come and dine, a place where people can come and find a home where the heart is at. That's our gospel reality. And how did God do that? What did it cost him? cost them everything embodying gospel commitment in the flesh so that we might eat the sweet fruit of his eternal salvation God gave his infinitely worthy son to pay the down payment for our lives apart from God remember we were once in conflict with God our sin like barbed wire fences separated us from God windows boarded up blinded and nailed shut our hearts were closed to God our gracious, good God. But even with closed hearts to him, God had an open heart towards us. And so he broke down that fence that separated us. When Jesus took the nails and the barbs that we used to board up our hearts, and he had them used to pierce his head, heart, and hand for us. So that we might be reconciled to God, And so that we might experience the transforming power of God through His Spirit, we've been set free to live a new life when Christ gave us new life in Him. Christians, you and I, it's not impossible. We have everything we need to walk in this gospel way. And Jesus walked ahead of us so that we might taste and see the sweet fruit of his way. If you are saved because of Jesus, you already taste that. You already see that personally in your own life. Now we're just taking it from the horizontal and spreading it on the. Now we're taking it from the vertical and spreading it to the horizontal. If you're finding yourself uh, struggling with walking with gospel commitment or finding yourself struggling with capacity for gospel commitment, I encourage you to look into your life and to check the rooms of your heart. What have you filled your new heart with? Have with, uh, Have we filled up the space with more of our stuff? Cluttered or stored it up with more things that ultimately serve us? I mean, it's possible, right? More often than not, when we move into bigger homes, We find all of a sudden, three years later, all of a sudden there's not enough room. Why? Because we bought more stuff for us and we filled up the rooms. happens sometimes, even in our spiritual life. I encourage you to ask your friends to check your schedules, to check your priorities and see what it is that fills your heart right now and keeps you from loving others. We have a chance to make room in our hearts today for one another by clearing the clutter and committing to one another in gospel-committed love. The question is, is if we will walk in it, will you walk in it? It's not a question of whether you can. It's a matter of if and with, if you will. Uh, For those of us who are investigating the faith, I want to say to you, this beautiful, sweet fruit is yours to live and yours to enjoy You can't DIY it on your own. You can't make your own version of this commitment, and you can't even remodel your heart so that you can do it. You have limited space because of the sin in our lives. Our bent is to prioritize ourselves. You need God to take the old house that is your heart and to build something new, something big and something beautiful, something that will bear sweet fruit. How do we do this? through faith and repentance. Faith is the whole soul movement, the trusting in God to forgive you and redeem you for your sins that separate you from God. Repentance is turning away from a life that serves you, that is committed to yourself, and a life that is committed to God. If you're looking for words to help express these things, I encourage you to look into the bulletin. Uh, There you'll find a prayer of belief at the very end. Take these words as your very own words and call on God and let them in. If you want to talk to someone about this, you can come find me after service, or you can come find one of our staff. You can talk to Stephen if you'd like. If you don't feel comfortable talking about it right now, you can always find our emails online at the Grace website. The question, though, for you is if you will receive this gift. If you'll accept this invitation. For the Christian, Jesus invites us to walk in this commitment with our friends. We've been free to do it, and we've been given bigger and newer hearts to do it. Skeptics, this is a life you could live if you just make room in your hearts for Jesus to come in. We have a choice today, and in seeing in 2 Corinthians 7 the form of gospel commitment and the fruit of gospel commitment, the question that we really need to answer is what will we do next? What will we do? The choice is yours. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage, chapter 7 of Second Corinthians 7, a passage that talks a lot about gospel commitment and often a passage overlooked. And Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage today, we would see with fresh eyes the words that you would have us live by and the way you would have us walk by. God, for the Christians who have enlarged hearts, we thank you for this gift. We pray that you would help us, help us to see what it is that clutters our hearts so that we might be able to make room for one another. For those of us investigating faith, God, I pray that you would help us come to a place where we can say, come on in. We might be able to say to you, God, I'm all in. And in committing to you, Lord, Would our new friends in Christ be able to commit to us and we to them as we make room for one another in each other's hearts? Amen. Amen. We have time for a few questions at this time. Um, We haven't done this in a while, and so let's see if I can answer some of them. I haven't operated an iPhone in a very long time, so forgive me as I try to figure this out. This is like a first-generation iPhone. Man, wow. OK, so the question here, first question is, do you have any insight into when it's okay to let go of gospel commitment, or is it just something to pursue unconditionally, i.e., if you keep calling out to someone and it just never changes? OK, this is a great question, because this is one of the most uh, this is a common misunderstanding that we have about what gospel commitment means. When I say gospel commitment, when the Bible talks about gospel commitment, it is referring to our horizontal relationships, our leaning into one another. And this person kind of gets it, and they're saying, do we stop and do we just get rid of it? Do we we just discontinue this gospel commitment? Uh, Gospel commitment not only knows when to lean in, but also when to step back. So we see this with Paul in the church uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, a person's caught in sin. And in gospel commitment to this brother who's caught in sexual sin, Paul says to them, do not associate with this brother. He says to them to punish the brother. In leaning in, there was a leaning out so that this brother might be able to recognize that they were walking in sin. And so sometimes, sometimes, for certain relationships, if say someone's walking in sin and you've talked to them, you've talked to them, you've leaned in, you've pursued, and they're not listening, you have to say to them, look, you're not walking according to the gospel. And if you don't walk according to the gospel, I cannot be your friend this way, and I need to take a step back. When you're ready, you can come back to me, but hey, this is not appropriate and this is not right. And that's part of what Church of Discipline is. And oftentimes uh, we, we do this not because it brings us joy, but because there's a hope, as First Timothy teaches us, there's a hope that the person will come to repentance and come back to us in restored and renewed relationship. And so uh, let's, let's not misunderstand here. We can still, even in leaning back occasionally and with wisdom, we can still lean in. There's, it's a very interesting and paradoxical relationship when it comes to gospel commitment. Okay. Second question here, um, okay, so it says, can you comment, comment on levels of commitment? Things like marriage have a clear, explicit commitment versus it being a sin to, not, to be not as committed to a partner during a dating period, i.e. dating versus being married. Thanks. I'm not quite sure I understand this question. Um, let me read this again. Can you comment on levels of commitment? Things like marriage have a clear, explicit commitment versus it being a sin to be not as committed to a partner during a dating period. Okay, I see what you mean. So we're making a distinction here between like husbands and wives, you don't have a choice. If you're married, you got the band on, you made the vows, you're stuck for life. Um, Maybe not the most, but you get the point. And then on the other side with dating, it's like, oh, you don't have the band, you're not stuck for life. And so where does commitment lie there? Okay, okay. That's a great way to think about to talk about this. Um, When you're in a dating commitment, your dating relationship, you're right. You don't you're you're not obligated to 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 stick it through all the way to the end because you're actually dating for clarity. You're trying to see whether this is a relationship that God has called you to and to commit to for the rest of your life. And so, even though we are called to walk in the principles of gospel commitment with transparency and integrity and uh, patience, it doesn't necessarily mean you're bound okay? Here we're talking, when we talk about gospel commitment, I'm not talking about that we are bound to one another in this way. I'm talking about the, 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 the traits of how we relate to one another. And so uh, with marriage, there's a certain vow that's made and you're introducing your oaths now. And so there's a, there's a covenant union that needs to be honored there. And, and commitment takes on that aspect. When you're in dating, there is a certain level of commitment where uh, you need to be full of integrity, you need to be transparent, and you need to be patient, but at the same time, you haven't tied the knot, so you're not required to. And so um, you're, you're not required to stay all the way to the end. And so um, in, in that sense, uh, there are gradations for commitment, uh, and I think it just, you just need to have wisdom as to determine how far or how, you know, how, how, how much do you lean in this is where I would say, you're, and this is to talk about other aspects of gospel life, this is where it's unbelievably important to have gospel friends, people who can look into your life and say, hey, that's not healthy, that's not wise. Hey, maybe you need to step back from this relationship because that's not helpful for you. Again, that leaning in, leaning out paradoxical dynamic, uh, you, you sometimes need to exercise wisdom. And uh, one of the best ways to do that is with friends. Okay, last question. And let's see here. Uh, what, oh, sorry, there's two questions. Uh, you mentioned leaning into the other when we experience conflict. How do we lean into a brother as, a, as opposed to someone who is not currently a believer? Uh, i.e., what I mean, is it possible for an unbeliever to experience godly sorrow? Great question. Okay. Is it possible for an unbeliever to experience godly sorrow? I would say, look at your own life. If you're a Christian asking this question, look at your own life. Before you met Jesus, how did you meet Jesus? You experienced godly sorrow. We did. We were confronted with our sin, we saw the depths of our sin, and then we went to God with our sin. And then we found repentance. We found new life. We experienced, that's godly sorrow. And that was when you're an unbeliever. And so uh, is an unbeliever able to experience godly sorrow? Yes, yes they are. Okay, well that's all we have for time in regards to Q and A. I wanna thank you for sending these questions in. Um, If you have texted any additional questions, I will message you back with this phone shortly. Uh, But for now, I'm gonna invite Stephen to lead us into a time of reflection.